Hello, this is Kevin McMullen, Senior Pastor of Independence Christian Center. Thanks for joining us as we break the bread of life today. Our prayer is that your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is strengthened by this word. God bless you. You can turn to Luke chapter 8 if you wish to score at home. I am entitling today's message provocatively, Guidance When God is Asleep. What? He never sleeps nor slumbers. Well, wait, and you'll see what I mean when we get a little deeper into it. Um, we, on our trip, were, we flew out of here at 1020 in the morning on Monday, and we're on time, and we're actually probably had descended to, I don't know, three or 4,000 feet, and we're already in uh, Love Field's airspace when suddenly I felt the... Uh, the throttle up and we began to turn away and I went, what in the world? And then the pilot came on and said, there's no way to sugarcoat this folks. There is some sort of high level security threat at Dallas Love Field and they have a full ground stop and are closed. We're going to Tulsa. And I'm like, great. You know, I, uh, I love Tulsa, but you know, when I said I insulted my hometown in front of these people, I said, Tulsa is a great place to be from. And I'm one of the few people I've ever met that is from Tulsa. Everybody else just lived there. I was born there. And so we flew to Tulsa. They said, okay, now don't even take your bags off because we've talked to headquarters and what they plan to do. There might be a few of you who are going to make connections in Dallas that we may put on other aircraft so that you can get on to your destination. But we're going to, for those of you going to Dallas, we're, we're, we're going to take this airplane. So we sat there for two hours, a little over, enough time for me to walk around the Tulsa terminal, which I haven't been in in 35 years or better, you know, and to uh, get a bite of lunch and everything. And I can almost hear the Lord saying, oh, ye, how many of you have God ever, you have God do something just to prove to you that, you know, you, you ought to have a little more confidence in me. And so we're getting ready to, oh, first of all, uh, the, the good people at Southwest Airlines cracked me up because there were two planes on the ground in Tulsa. That for the same reason, we were at gate B1 and they were at B3. And as it turns out, when they gave us clearance to take off at 2.15, and we'd been there since, you know, a little before noon, 2.15, 2 both, both planes were to leave at the same time. And so the two gate agents who were, could hear each other and we could all hear them were talking smack back and forth about who was going to get their plane loaded and out of there first. And it was hysterical. It really lightened the mood. The other plane won. <laughs> and, what, you know, I was telling Kathy, I said, wait, you just wait. When we get there, you know, all of these flights that were so delayed are all going to be arriving at the same time. The baggage claim is going to be an absolute zoo. And then to go pick up the rental car, it's going to be ah, like that. And she goes, well, maybe it won't be so bad. When we got there, we got off the airplane. We walked, you know, took Liam to the bathroom, went down, to, you know, we didn't dawdle. We went down to baggage claim and we, when we got there, there were only four bags on that huge carousel and all four of them were ours. I'm like, how does this work? Man. So we grabbed our four bags. We went down the runway, you know, the ramp that, that goes out to where the, you know, rental car shuttles pick you up. And this guy goes, 
who? And I went, Enterprise. And he turns around and goes like this. And we didn't even have to stand there more than 10 seconds before we were on the shuttle on our way to the rental car place. When we got to the rental car place, we walked through the door and we were the only customers in the lobby. In and out. Now, the heater on the pool didn't work and the beds were hard. But other than that, the rest of the trip went without, um, uh, you know, God has a sense of humor. But as we were driving through Dallas on the way to uh, Allen, which is north of town, um, I was seeing some things and I was stirred in my spirit about what I was seeing. And I was really asking God about it. And he spoke to me the next day. And then a couple of other individuals said some things that just underlined it. And I want to share with you. And we're still talking about listening to God. Last time, last week, we talked about hearing God listening to God in the midst of the storm. And we're going to do do another storm today, but I want you to see Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 22. And we've got a substantial chunk of scripture because there's two stories here. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. The scripture, well, this incident is recorded in all three synoptic gospels. And an eyewitness says Jesus got in the boat and his disciples followed him. So he, he, he went with purpose and said to them, let us go to, over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell what? Asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake. And they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master. We're dying. We're perishing. Another gospel says, don't you care? You've never talked to God like that, have you? Amen. And he, he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves. And they stopped and became calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Then, actually the Greek word is and, because this is all part of the same narrative. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out into the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons. And who had not put on any clothing for a long time. And was not living in a house, but in the tombs. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now, in another gospel, it says, are you here to torment us before the time? So all those things, you know, were said. But Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us this particular narrative. And now there was a herd 
of swine, many swine, feeding there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. And he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Can you imagine the mess that left? And when, you know, sometimes deliverance can get messy. I'll wait, you're worth it. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and they rushed down into the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man in whom the demons uh, from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. And those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerasenes and the surrounding district asked him to leave. For they were gripped with fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But the man in, from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away, saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. We will come back to this in due course. Israel suffered two different if you don't count the Assyrian, I know uh, where the Assyrian Empire took the northern ten tribes into captivity and dispersed them throughout. I'm not even talking about that one. I want to talk about all of Israel and then later on Judah, which is part of Israel. They endured two different, uh, they were enslaved to two different nations with two different characters in their history. The first, of course, was Egypt. Egypt is a type, it is a, an illustration, it is a representation of the world system, the world's values, the world's methods, the world's approach to everything. The second to which we will refer was when Judah was carried away, uh, when Zedekiahu, or Zedekiah was the king, to Babylon. Babylon is a type of self-made demonic slash human religion. That is why over in the Revelation, the book of Revelation, we see the great harlot, the whore of Babylon, the religious system of the day. And Judah had gotten so far off that God sent Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, who were themselves a mess, but they weren't as big a mess as Judah. And remember in Babylon, and you've read the book of Daniel, I'm sure, where they used religion a lot of different ways. And the most spectacular, first, you know, anybody who prays to anyone but, the, you know, makes a petition to anybody but the king is to be thrown into a den of lions and fed to the lions. And of course, we know what happened with Daniel. And then we had the, the golden image set up on the plain of Dura. And the king said, anyone, you know, when you hear the sound of the bagpipe and the psaltery and the, and he names all these different uh, instruments and all of the music, that is a type of pagan worship or of soulish worship. He said, bow 
And if you don't bow, you're going into the furnace. And we know about Hananiah, Azariah, and Mikhail, the, you know, Shadrach, Eshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into the fire, but there was somebody else in there. And they came out. Babylon was a, is representative of the human twisting, the subversion, the perversion of authentic spiritualities. In the 70s, late 70s, the Lord spoke to me very clearly that what I was about to see would be the Babylonian captivity of the church. How the church in North America would be sucked in to the, to the, to the, not just the world's values, but their spirituality. And connecting the dots in retrospect, I began to see in the 90s that that is exactly where the church has been. Not in uh, Egypt, but in Babylon. In fact, Kevin Webster one time said to me that he was over in Russia preaching about how that Russia was Gog and Magog and all this kind of stuff. And he's learned better than to do that now. And, you know, because Hal Lindsey may be right and he may not. And uh, he, he's, you know, and he said afterwards, one of the brethren, Russian brethren who was there, uh, who may or may not have been incensed by what he said, was said, well, maybe Russia is Gog, but America is the whore of Babylon. And he said, I wanted to respond. And he said, I realized he had me nailed. When you think about Hollywood and and. All of, and the things that we are trying to export, to export to the whole world through the United Nations about gender confusion and, and all of this stuff that is absolutely nothing but lawlessness. Dressed up to look spiritual. You know. And we, we have been reshaping traditional biblical teaching on worship and morality and ethics. And then, you know what? I'm not just going to point at the woke Christians and say it's you. Uh, uh, the charismatics, we did our share in basically turning the gospel into a way to financially prosper. And making that God's number one priority when it's not number one or number two or even number three. Important? Yes. And we have given ourselves, and this is a literary we, it's not you and me, but it's the church in general of which, North American church of which we are a part, have given ourselves license to live with this hyper grace teaching, however we, our flesh desires, and to still feel good about ourselves because we go to church and are told, you know, just how much God loves us and how he just, you know, it's like we go to church so God can grab our cheeks and go, you're just so cute. And that's nothing new, as Jeremiah and Ezekiel can attest. There's always false ministry saying, God is pleased with you when he may or may not be. Now, don't get me wrong. God loves every one of us, and I'm not talking works righteousness. God loves me. I cannot make, you cannot make. No one can make God love them more by being obedient or less by being sinful. God doesn't change. But he does have varying levels of approval of our actions. And it would help us to realize 
that his approval of our actions is born and is rooted and grounded in the knowledge of what those actions are going to produce in our own lives and those of the those around us. I remind you that the highest symbol of Babylon was Nebuchadnezzar, their king, who lost his mind. Marianne Brown prophesied 30 years ago that she saw, the Lord spoke to her, a spirit of insanity being released on the United States. I remember the first time she said that. It's been nearly three decades ago. She said it here. And I'm sitting there thinking, what does that look like? What does, what does a spirit of insanity look like? You know, I, I, I didn't know. No, I didn't. I didn't know. And see, sometimes we hear things from the prophetic people who see things, and maybe they don't even know what they mean. And I remember she, she had a vision of, of G.W. Bush. Is it Bush 42 what, or 41? I can't remember. Whichever the latest Bush, not, not the first George. And he, she said she saw him sitting at a desk, and he's like, and he sighs, like, I really don't want to do this. And he signed some papers and then pushed them away from me. She said, the very next thing I saw was him in a casket. And I took that literally. What I didn't realize later is that he made some decisions concerning war and stuff like this. It basically ended his political career. Yeah, he got reelected, but he'll always be remembered for some things that didn't work out as well. And when she said that spirit of insanity has been released, it had been planted. You got to remember that everything both in darkness and in the kingdom of God, start small and grow. Today, if somebody asked me, what does that spirit of insanity look like? I could take you straight to CNN and say, not only the news, but the presenters themselves, lies, twisting, mass shootings, people doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And that culture has permeated the church. The church we have become in North America, again, it's literary we, have become consumers and not members. Churches, ministries, organizations, etc. We go from church to church because that church meets my needs. Believe it or not, we do not are not to go to church based on what meets our needs. We go to church on where the Holy Spirit plants us so that we may meet the needs of others. Why? Because we are members, not consumers. How do I know that when the consumer mentality begins to get a hold of me? When I start complaining to God about his service level. The piece of equipment that we were supposed to receive so that Carl wouldn't be handcuffed back there without a multi-view was supposed to have arrived Friday. Via an express service that is famous but shall remain nameless. I should have known when they told me to be there that day because we've had a lot of trouble with these people and they do not drive brown trucks. And it's like, ah, it didn't show up on time. Do they realize the pickle they threw us into? And poor Carl's gonna have to sit back there and suffer, and we could have gotten some stuff done, but it's like a fix I'm going to call them, give them a piece of like it. That's a consumer attitude. And when we start complaining to God about how this is going and how that's going and how some, 
<clears throat> I'll wait. This is a good way to empty out a big church. We passed a church in Dallas that had multiple 15, 16, 17, 18 story buildings next to each other. I'm going as I pass by and I'm not assaulting them. I'm not impugning. I don't even remember the name of it. I was just gobsmacked because I saw a big building that said such and such church and I thought, wow. And then the next building, even bigger, had the same name on it. And then the next building, even bigger, had the same name on it. Right on LBJ. 635. I'm like, whoa. Lord, I'd just like the tithe off of their budget. Our culture has continued to decline into self-centered psychosis. What is a psychosis? It is insanity that has lost touch with reality. And we're seeing it in government. We're seeing it in the education system. We're seeing it, um, well, we're seeing it at the mall. And I want to talk about that briefly, maybe, about the journey, that journey and its end, because it's glorious. Everybody say, but God. But God. When we read, now, when we go back to Luke chapter 8, Jesus, beginning in verse 1, and we didn't read that part, had been ministering extensively in Galilee, which is on the west side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. And this, for all intents and purposes, Capernaum, etc., that was his home region. And now that he has his team built and solidified, he strikes out for new territory. He said, let's go to the other side of the lake. Well, the other side of the lake wasn't Galilee. That was Decapolis. They called it Decapolis. That wasn't the name of it. That was the region. Because literally Decapolis, Decapolis means 10 cities. And Gerasa and Gadara, etc. were all in that area. And I don't know if Jesus himself knew what was waiting for them, this demon-possessed guy, on the other side of the lake. I don't know if he knew that because Jesus functioned as a human being under the anointing of the Spirit, and he did not know everything. He knew what the Spirit showed him, just like you and I know what the Spirit shows us. The difference between you and me and Jesus is Jesus didn't make mistakes about what the Lord had shown him. And didn't feel the need to prophesy when the Holy Spirit wasn't saying anything. And the disciples. I don't know if Jesus knew, but if he knew, he wasn't saying anything. And the disciples had no idea what was waiting on the other side of the lake. And so here they go. They get in. He, he gets in. In fact, Matthew's account, I believe it is, says that he gets it. Which Matthew, Luke, Luke's account is a distillation of multiple eyewitness accounts. Mark's, uh, Mark's version of it is Peter's, Mark is Peter's memoirs. Matthew was an eyewitness to it all. And so they had unmistakable, we're talking about listening to God, I have not de de departed from the subject. Uh, they had unmistakable guidance. Jesus gets in the boat. Matthew tells us that Jesus got into the boat and told the disciples, let's go. 
Now, this is their first trip over to the other side. So, I mean, they would make many other crossings as the ministry continued in the, in the months and years following. But this is the first time. And so they were like, well, okay. And as they, you know, when they, and on the way over, things got hairy. And Matthew, the eyewitness, here it says that a fierce gale. Matthew calls it a megastorm. And it was stirring up great waves. Now there's symbolism here. I believe that these stories occurred, these events occurred just exactly as we have read them. Every bit of it. But having said that, I believe that the Holy Spirit anointed the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to write them in a certain way because he knew that people Ancient people in particular reading certain things would have a certain understanding about it that might escape us unless we drill down on it a little bit. And that is when you see the wind and the waves and the storms, that is throughout the scripture indicative of people in turmoil, nations in turmoil, evil stirring up people groups. You even see with David, oh, the floods have overwhelmed me. My feet are stuck in the mire and it, things of that nature. Jesus in Luke 21 talking about the, there'll be, you know, dismay, literally oppression among nations because of the, uh, the, the wind, the roaring of the wind and the waves. We already see those things happening. We see civil disobedience and we see real stress in nations like Sri Lanka and, and others where there is real trouble because of food um, uh, insecurity and inflation, etc. And don't think it can't happen here. I'm not saying it will, but I'm saying don't think it can. And so there, when it says the boat was in danger of being swamped, that means water is coming over into the boat, which of course causes the boat, number one, to be heavier, and they're having to row, and number two, to sit lower in the water, meaning that the, the, you know, the increased draft means they had to displace even more water to push it through. So in other words, it was a double whammy. And here's Jesus. Just peacefully sleeping in the midst of all this. The silence was deafening. Don't you care that we're dying out here? Don't you care? Master, have you not noticed that we are headed for Davy Jones Locker very shortly? Everybody know what Davy Jones Locker is? Yeah. You have to be a certain age to know that, I guess. The bottom. What do we have? What's going on here? It's a developmental test in process or progress. The storms of life, we talked about that to some extent last week, comes, come to us all and in his infinite wisdom, God allows them to happen. And he may even let us think that he's asleep because we're crying out to him and not hearing anything. Now, I'm not going to get up here and say, oh yes, you know, if you don't hear from God, if you don't get an audible word or something like that, you know, there's something wrong with you. No! Jesus was asleep. And when they woke him up, they didn't say, Oh God, oh Jesus, isn't this wonderful? Look at what's happening. This is a wonderful opportunity 
for you to show yourself strong. No, we're dying. You know, sometimes it just seems like God doesn't answer the phone. In that situation, what do we do? Well, what was the last thing God said to you? We function understanding orders. He said, let's go to the other side. He, he didn't say, go out of ways, get scared, and come back. He didn't say, go out of ways, and sink. He said, let's go to the other side. And so that's what we do. Until the Lord gives us definite, unmistakable change of direction, we continue in what he has told us to do. It will be sorely tempting to quit. It will be sorely tempting to give up. It will be sorely tempting to change our priorities. It will be sorely tempting to fashion our faith and say, well, maybe by that he meant this. Is that what you thought when he spoke you to? I mean, you, well, no, then quit. Re, don't reinterpret it now. In fact, in verse 25, he says, in Matthew, you know, uh, he said, you know, we're, what, come back, let's see. Um, I want to get it right. And he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, verse 24. And he rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped and it became calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And Matthew was there. Matthew says, he said, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Have you ever had a situation where news came to you that just sucked all the wind right out of you? <gasps> We were in, you've heard me tell this story before, but we were in Minnesota one time and somebody, I got a call from the office and said that a process server had shown up looking for me. And I went, what? Yeah, a guy said he was a process server and he was looking for you. So I called an attorney friend of mine and I said, what does that mean? He says, well, it sounds to me like you're getting sued. You talk about something that will ruin your day. And it's like the Lord's saying, why, why are you afraid? Does anything take him by surprise? And as it turned out, we were being sued by a letter carrier who had slipped and fallen and injured themselves on a, on a porch that was, uh, had not been de-iced, had not been, it was covered with ice, it was during the wintertime. And somehow, one of the legal assistants had pulled up that this church owned that house. And this attorney friend of mine got in there and said, I'm going to send them a letter. And they sent a very profusely apologetic letter back to us so that we wouldn't come after them for what, you know, infliction of injury. Yeah, it's like... <gasps> And Jesus said to him, why are you afraid? You know what fear is? It's unbelief. And I'm, I don't, believe me, I struggle with it. 
from time to time as much as the next person. Because we're confronted with stuff that seems bigger than God, that seems bigger than life, that seems like it's the kind of thing God, Lord, carest thou not that we perish? That kind of thing. And he said, why were you afraid? It has been said by somebody that fear is more confidence in the devil than we have in God. Well, it'd be hard to argue with that. And Jesus, this was a developmental task. Why? Because Jesus knew and the Father knew that they would not always have him physically present. The day would come that they would have to be under the tutelage of an unseen teacher, meaning the Holy Spirit. So they get to the other side. And here comes the Gadarene demoniac. Bearing all the earmarks of our current culture in this country. And I'm, what I'm doing here is I'm taking all of the accounts of, the, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and combining them. We're not going to go to these different places. But first of all, he was naked. They couldn't get him to, leak, to wear clothes. That's an indecency. That is a sexual perversion. That's where that's... That's where sexual perversion and indulging in those things lead. And so here was someone who was sexually perverse and had no sense of decency about him. And it had robbed him of his sin and robbed him of all of that. He was also living in the tombs. He was obsessed with death. We have a culture that is obsessed with death. We want to kill them before they are even born. And we get upset if you tell us we can't do that. Um, death is a right. Murder is a, is a privilege in this. It's a right. Matthew tells us that his violence was increasing. Luke shares how they couldn't keep him in chains. That even when they would try to restrict him, he was out of control. He was uncontrollable. I mean, when we look around us today in this nation, tell me that darkness and wickedness and perversion and lying and corruption are not out, don't seem to be, out of control. It's gotten to the point that when corruption in our government is pointed out, people just go, ah, well, whatever. There's no sense of outrage anymore among many. And also, Mark tells us that he would shout and scream and yell threatening things. I'm going to cancel you! Get away from me! Get out of here! This is, my, you know, it, 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 was, it was ugly. The man was completely infested. But it wasn't a problem for Jesus. The same faith that manifested on the lake would take care of the enemy right here. Remember when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, he found the disciples arguing with the Pharisees about something. And he comes up and he says, what were you discussing with them? And before he could even answer, a man in the crowd said, Master, I brought my son to your disciples to cure my son who is a lunatic. He's demon-possessed. And they couldn't do it. Now, 
the disciples had previously been sent out two by two and came back and reported to Jesus, even the devils are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I don't think that was when they were out. I think that was in, in the past when Lucifer was ejected from heaven. And he will be ejected even. So the heaven to which Lucifer currently has access are the atmospheric heavens around us. And according to the revelation, he will even lose that access at some point in the not too distant future, judging by the way things are going. And he, you know, this guy uh, was screaming and shouting and threatening. And, and we, we, we see all of that, you know, but coming back to the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, he, he said, they said, we couldn't, you know, and, and the, the father said, well, they couldn't do it. And Jesus said, bring him to me. And he said, oh, perverse and untoward generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Let me translate that for you again. Everybody in this church has heard it. But for those of you listening, he said, you bunch of knuckleheads, when are you going to get it? He was not happy. They had already seen the power at work. But when they brought the boy to Jesus, he immediately went into a grand mal seizure, just fell at his feet, started writhing and foaming at the mouth, etc. When he did that to the disciples, they went, ah, 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 ah. Natural response. Most people haven't ever seen anything like that. And it gave them the freak out. Some of you get that. And their mountain-moving faith went gone. Don't gone. Remember the little, remember when you, some of us remember, uh, Lindsay yesterday was over at the Brass Armadillo. She took a picture of a 1955 model Zenith 17-inch black and white TV. Sent it to me. Thank you. I remember that television. Actually, I don't remember that TV because in 1955, I wasn't even quite a year old. But I do remember the dot. Those of us who are old enough remember that you'd have the big picture like this. And when you turn it off, the, screen, the picture would go. Whew, because the CRT, the, the, like that, it had... The, the, it took a while for the for the charge, the voltage, to drain off of the of the electron gun in the back, and it would make this little dot in the middle of the screen that would slowly fade away. I remember seeing on the Carol Burnett show uh, a gag about people who were, you know, just addicted to television. They turn it off like this, and so he reaches over and turns it off, and they're going. He goes, "What?" He goes, "The dot." Then they came up with a dot killer. They actually put a dot killer in the TV. So when you turned it off, you weren't mesmerized by the dot. When these guys who had seen great things happen, even the demons are subject to us in your name. When this guy went out on the ground and started doing that, their faith went from full screen to a dot. And there was a dot killer involved, engaged. And they're just... And they, could, they, they couldn't do anything. Jesus, of course, immediately cast the thing out. But even after he did, it looked like the kid was dead. There's a sermon in there. 
Sometimes you're going to take authority over things and you're going to believe God and God will move. But for every evidence you have, it looks like it's dead. But it's not. Everybody say amen. God is in the process of giving life, not death. So here was this. It, you know, somebody said, well, what about the pigs? What do, you, what do you do with those? Well, that's been an enigma, which is a really, is a $3 word I paid, but I got it for two fifty. That means mystery. And people, for, for all time, Bible scholars have tried to come up with one thing after another to explain the pigs. The way I look at it is very simple. It was an illust, yes, do I believe that it happened? yes. Do I believe they rushed down into the water? Yes. Do I believe they were drowned? Yes. Do I believe their bloated bodies probably surfaced again sometime thereafter, making quite the mess? Yes. Well, what do you think it represented? I just think that it represented all, remember pigs, they, they lived, they didn't live in Galilee, they lived in a, in a Gentile area. So the pigs, the, there was, you know, the locals didn't see, it, the Jews wouldn't have anything to do with them. But the locals didn't have any problem with swine. But the Jews would understand that those pigs were, by definition, unclean. And that when this guy got set free, all that uncleanness was cast into the sea. Never to return. But when the people of the area of Decapolis, the cities in that area, came out and saw. Look what it says they saw. Verse 35. The people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I believe God wants to clothe and restore the right mind. That is what I'm going to call harvest. Not everybody is going to respond. But what was their first reaction? Go away! They canceled him. Go away! We're seeing that today. We've had court decisions that are righteous. Go away! Are you with me? And remember the, the social and political turmoil through which they had to fight their way just to get there. But we are not to be afraid. We are not to quit. We're in that storm crossing the lake. And we are to rebuke those storms and march on. Hush. Shut up. Be still. Here's this little boat full of a dozen 15 guys coming over only to be told to leave. Go away. But something had changed and they didn't even know it. The remnant, there is, God has a remnant who will not conform to the culture, who will not bow their knee to another gospel, which is really not another or like a, we'll take the gospel and begin to fashion it into something, you know, Paul says, heap teachers to their, you know, themselves with their own desires. 
Because people, we're, we're gonna, you're going to see it. You mark my words. Even in the world, they're going to get tired of the insanity because they're going to realize it's killing them. And they've lived in it and they've participated in it and it's no longer fun. Now, there are some that are so hardened, you know, but these people will begin to seek true peace. If you read the other accounts, this guy came running up to Jesus. Jesus didn't go to him. He came to Jesus. And seeking true peace, true meaning, true relationship with the father. And they will be, these people will be, now what did it say for him to do? Verse 39, he told him, return to your house. He wanted to go with Jesus, so please let me go with you. I believe the day came that he was able to go with Jesus. But there was something he had to do first. And if you don't know the scripture, you don't understand the geography and everything, I'm going to explain it to you. Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. This guy wasn't just famous. He was infamous. He was well known. He had terrorized the whole area. And when he comes walking in, clothing in his right mind, people are going to go, what? He says, return to your house and describe. Describe. Tell them what happened. Describe. What great things. Give your testimony that God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming to the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. He was not cancelable. Why? Because he was one of them. You wait and see if I don't know what I'm talking about. And that is that we are going to see an increasing number of people to whom the remnant minister raising them up out of bondage. And they will begin to describe to the people around them what great things Jesus has done for them. And there will be no way for the few to shut them up. Some months later. I believe Mark 5 is where that, that journey is uh, detailed. Some months later in Mark 7, Jesus returned to Decapolis and ministered in that area, if our musicians would come, for an extended period of time. He worked miracles. He was acclaimed by the population. He gathered such a huge crowd at one point that he turned to the disciples and said, we can't send them home. What are we, what are we going to feed them? And that was the feeding of the 4,000. That's a far cry from go away. They were even saying he has done all things well. What marvelous things. And he actually ministered for several weeks, they believe, in that area because the ministry was so fruitful. And it all started with one demon-possessed guy. I mean, think about that. The whole team fights through a storm, has to wake Jesus up to get and minister to one guy and they have to file an insurance claim on that herd of pigs. Does anybody believe Lloyds of London was around? 
I don't. Farmers insurance group. Yeah, we insure pigs. All right. And they were told to leave. I can imagine as they're rowing back, what was that all about? Yeah, I mean, that guy got help, but good Lord. He didn't even let him come with us. I would have let him come. Wonder why Jesus didn't let that guy come with us. I mean, if I would have been in his situation, I don't think I would have been wanting to go back to my neighbors in front of whom I danced naked and screamed and yelled at them, ran them off. They kept calling the cops on me and I kept breaking out of jail. I don't think I would want, I think I'd rather just go with Jesus. But Jesus said, no, I've got a plan. I've got another plan. The Father has another plan for you. And it's entirely possible that after his ministry in Decapolis, when he was greatly received, and when he saw miracles multiplied, that, that he, he might have said, you still want to go? And the guy said, yeah, come on. I don't know that he did or not. But I, you know what? You can't prove he didn't. The seeds of the harvest are being sown through the remnant. And I believe we're really close to seeing some of these things begin to manifest. Don't go by what you see. Don't go by all the wind. Don't go by all the waves. Don't go by the opposition. Don't go by the storm. It may seem for all the world to you and to me and to the rest of us that God is asleep and not answering the phone. But I assure you, he is on the job and is doing exactly what is necessary to accomplish his plans. The first round might seem like a pyrrhic victory. All the way over, one guy, all the way home. But as that guy, as God used that guy, and, they be, and he began spreading the word and telling people, and they're all starting to talk about Jesus. By the time Jesus came back, they were ready to meet him. I want to see this guy. I want to hear from this guy. I know it's hard to believe, but I'm telling you that people in this nation and other nations are going to be hungry for the real thing. And this consumerism is going to quit satisfying them. That is the church. We need revival there. Then once we have revival there, once we get things lined out over here in Galilee on the west side of the lake, then we're going over to the east side. And that's where things are going to really, that's where the fireworks are really going to start. A greater move, a greater move is coming. And I, for one, am excited about seeing an, a huge chunk of our nation clothed and in their right mind. What an awesome thing. And I get to be a part of that. I wouldn't want to live at any other time. I'm saying that today. Now, day after tomorrow, it may feel different. But I honestly know that I have been set aside. You and I have been called to this place at this time. And that what he has promised, he will perform. Let's all stand. Those of you watching by web, I want to encourage you. Become members, not consumers. Be a part of the answer. Be a part of the the move, be a part of what God's doing. It's about the kingdom. Seek ye first.
the kingdom of God and His way of doing things, His righteousness, and all the things will come. You know, they're talking about food insecurity, food shortages, and we're seeing it. You know, I was over at Costco the other day and they were limiting people to two cartons of eggs because they didn't have enough. That's changed since apparently, but because I was over there yesterday and they weren't doing that. And yes, we are being conditioned to say, wow, $3.39 for gas. Yeah, that's cheap. No, it's not. But it doesn't matter because our God is supplying all our needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Because we are bearing our pack. We are all carrying our load. We are all getting in the yoke with Jesus. And His yoke is easy and His burden is light. If you're not a believer, boy, don't wait. Right now is the time to bow your head and say, Father God, I repent. I need to change direction. I believe in my heart. I confess with my lips that Jesus Christ is your son. Lord Jesus, come into my heart and be my Lord and be my Savior. And the scripture says you will be transferred from the dominion, the boot of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And your destiny will change in ways you cannot even fathom right now. And it will be for eternity an unfolding blessing. And it doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, or how gross you see yourself. Our Father has already promised that He will cast no one out who comes to Him. No one. If you're a Christian and you're not engaged in ministry, in, your, in a church. And when I say engaged in ministry, I don't mean from the pulpit or necessarily in some particular department, but I mean where you are contributing financially, you are contributing of your, your time, you're contributing of your effort, etc. Why? Because a thousand years from now, all the other stuff that we're doing will be, won't mean a thing. In fact, a hundred years from now. And for some of us, as little as 10 years from now. Eternity is coming. The future is coming. In fact, it's here. And I want to encourage you. Put your hand to it. In your finances. In your time. Put God first. Your first priority. You'll be so glad you did. Amen. We hope this message has been a great blessing to you and has helped build your faith in Jesus. We encourage you to visit our app, Independence Christian Center, on your cell phone, available from the Apple App Store or Android, Google Play. You can also find us on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon, YouTube, and Facebook, again, under Independence Christian Center, or at our website, iccfamily, all one word, dot O-R-G, iccfamily.org. O-R-G. Our heart's desire here is to labor with the Lord in building His body. Until next time, may God's very best be yours.